2: Hello everyone, welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host James Rogers and in this episode we're looking at Trident, that multi-layered nuclear missile system that is said to act as a deterrence posture for the United Kingdom. In essence, the whole point of it is to deter other nation states from sending nuclear missiles or attacking the UK. In theory, at least, but it's been in the news a lot recently. The government of Boris Johnson has agreed to increase the amount of nuclear weapons that the UK has by 40%, and there's lots of domestic considerations as well, because if Scotland does secure a second referendum and chooses to leave the UK, well then there's a bit of a dilemma about where the UK is going to keep its nuclear missiles, because so many of them are in Scotland, and there doesn't seem to be an alternative. Well, it seemed like with all these issues going on, it was about time that we got an expert on Trident, onto the podcast. So I called up my old friend, Nick Ritchie. I used to work with him at the University of York. He is the UK's leading expert on Trident. He's written the book on it, A Nuclear Weapons Free World, Britain, Trident, and the Challenges Ahead. And he takes us step by step through the history of Trident, why the UK first got nuclear weapons, the technical aspects of those systems, and yes, those challenges that we face ahead over the coming years decades. So here he is, Dr Nick Ritchie from the University of York on Trident. Hi Nick, thanks for coming on the Warfare Podcast.
3: How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks James, and thank you for inviting me on to
2: talk about the things that we're going to talk about. Yeah, not a problem at all. Now, you're a politics prof at the University of York. Is term almost over there yet? Is it almost summer in York? We are almost there, yeah. The end is in sight
3: after a a difficult year dealing with the effects of COVID on how we teach and the effects on staff and in particular how it's affected our students. But the students are gearing up for, uh, some are gearing up for their exams, which will be in a couple of weeks. Others, final year students are gearing up to submit their dissertations and the master's students are finishing essays and then getting stuck into their dissertations that they'll do over the summer.
2: So that's the the phase that we're at in the
3: academic year.
2: That's great, a long summer ahead. And you know, for those who don't know, me and Nick used to work together at the University of York. I do absolutely love that city. And it's got a brilliant nuclear bunker museum. Have you been? Do you know what, I haven't. I mean, I know where it is. I haven't been
3: down there. I looked into taking a bunch of my students down there because I teach a third year module on the global politics of nuclear weapons. But this was just as COVID hit and it was kind of a bit of a no-go. But I haven't been, it's an English heritage Cold War bunker, but they do uh, tours, organised tours and so on. But no, I haven't been there yet. I mean, I don't live in York itself. live just about 20 miles away. I think my first visit will be when we take a a bunch of those students
2: down. Oh yeah, you've got to go. It was the regional command centre for measuring radiation that would have been emitted in the event of a nuclear bomb being dropped on the UK. And the projections show that it would have been dropped on Manchester and then radiated out. And then I think they had something like 64 smaller bunkers across Yorkshire. Each one would have been inhabited by two people who would have measured the radiation and then reported it back to the central command. They would have jotted it on a map and seen where was safe and where wasn't safe. I mean, it's it's all a bit mad, isn't it?
3: Yeah, and when you watch, you know, films like Threads and The Day After from the nineteen eighties that try and quite viscerally depict what the experience of a nuclear war would look and feel like for you know everyday folk, the Threads UK version, The Day After was an American film seen by Reagan who was quite shocked by it, reportedly. And Threads was shown on the BBC in I think it was nineteen eighty four depicting the destination of some Russian or Soviet hydrogen bombs in Sheffield. And then the more that one kind of learns about the practices and and procedures put in place to try and ensure some continuity of government in light of a a Cold War nuclear exchange, the idea of having a couple of people in bunkers across Yorkshire reporting back to some central authority kind of... (laughs) I uh, regard with some degree of skepticism as to whether there will be any hope of a functioning central authority in existence in that sort of nuclear exchange scenario and in that sort of second iteration of the Cold War in, in the early 1980s. I mean, all this, Peter Hennessy details it in lots of fine detail, the his, UK historian and Lord. Peter Hennessy in his book, The Secret State, where he goes into quite a lot of detail on the command and control processes, the continuity of government, how governments try to plan against what would just be the the worst possible scenario of a major hydrogen bomb attack by the Soviet Union against the UK. So that bunker in York is, is of that era, of that vintage, yeah.
2: Well, all happy thoughts to start the Warfare warfare podcast. It's always a cheery experience, you know, when you meet
3: some new folk and you're down the pub and you say, what do you do? I teach at the University of York. What do you teach? Well, my interest is in nuclear weapons and nuclear disarmament. And people are interested, but about 30 seconds into the conversation... You know, the seriousness and the gloom descends and you kind of think, "Mm, shall we maybe change track on this conversation?
2: Well, we're not going to change track because I'm interested. I know our listeners are interested. So let's dive into this. Let's look at nuclear war or at least nuclear weapons, because our topic of discussion today is Trident. So tell us, what is Trident?
3: In terms of the British state's nuclear weapons capability, we have one nuclear weapons system. We call it Trident, but really it's a, I suppose, a three or four-part system. It consists of four nuclear-powered, nuclear-armed submarines that are equipped with the Trident 2D5, to give it its full title, missile, which is an American submarine-launched ballistic missile. So the Americans deploy these on their nuclear armed submarines. And the UK reached an agreement to lease a certain number of these missiles from a common pool of these missiles that are kept and maintained in the United States. So we've got four submarines, access to stockpile of American designed and built Trident missiles and then we've got the warheads that are mounted on those missiles that are designed and and built in the United Kingdom but are based on or very closely resemble a particular warhead of American design that the Americans deploy on their Trident missiles and then I guess the fourth part I mean there so those are kind of the three parts of the of the system that we often refer to as Trident's the missiles, the warheads, and the submarines. And then I guess the fourth part that I alluded to is the much broader command and control complex to manage the deployment of the submarines and targeting and any actual use firing of the weapons.
2: Okay, so what's the logic behind this? Why do we possess this incredibly powerful nuclear weapons system? So the logic behind it
3: is the logic of nuclear deterrence, and for the successive British governments, certainly into the post-Cold War period, the Trident system has been routinely referred to as the ultimate insurance, the guarantee of protection of the British state. It's not a set of arguments that I concur with, but the logic is that in a world in which other potentially Aggressive and adversarial states deploy nuclear weapons. The traditional threat has always been the Soviet Union and then Russia and remains so today with, for some, China sort of looming on the horizon. So long as adversarial states retain nuclear weapons that can be targeted at the United Kingdom, its allies threaten what the government of the day considers to be the country's vital National interests. Then the UK must have a nuclear capability with which it can threaten credible retaliation in the event of a of an enemy considering a nuclear attack against the UK, its allies, or its interests. And the logic of nuclear deterrence, as it developed through the fifties and sixties, primarily in the US, as an intellectual set of ideas, an ideology, if you like, argued that the the most credible and stabilizing way in which you can deploy your nuclear weapons is to do what the UK does deploy them at sea in submarines that still remain undetectable at sea and can't be destroyed in a preemptive first strike preemptive nuclear first strike and therefore some degree of retaliation can be guaranteed so the scenario is a conflict escalates gets out of control, nuclear weapons are used, probably low yield at the war fighting level. Conflict escalates further to the use of nuclear weapons against the countries involved, homelands. And in that event of the UK... In a Cold War context, I mean, I find it incredibly fanciful to think that this is even a a remotely exotic possibility today. Others will obviously disagree with that. But in a Cold War context, the scenario was perhaps a bolt from the blue attack from the Soviet Union, but more likely escalation. The Soviet Union is preparing to fire nuclear, strategic nuclear warheads against NATO countries, including the UK and perhaps the US as well. And the United Kingdom government can be assured then That no matter what the Soviet Union does, there will be a submarine, a British submarine at sea, able to fire a retaliatory strike against the Soviet Union, in particular against Moscow. And that then would deter the Russians, the Soviet Union, from considering a first strike in in the process. So in order for that to make kind of that logic to make sense sort of internally based on those premises, then the UK government has operated a nuclear strategy, a posture called continuous at sea deterrence, CASD, and has done so through thick and thin since middle of 1968, continuously. And that means there is always one of our four nuclear armed submarines at sea on operational patrol 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Through the Cold War up to '94. it might have been the Strategic Defence Review in '98. But through all of the Cold War, until things start to change a bit in the early post-Cold War period, the single submarine on operational patrol at sea was held at 15 minutes notice to fire on what was called quick reaction alert. So within 15 minutes of a command coming in via the Prime Minister and then via the command and control system through the Ministry of Defence, then the submarine will be able to release its arsenal of, of missiles and their warheads within 15 minutes. Now the policy formally was changed. I think it was in the 1998 Strategic Defence Review under the new Labour government of Tony Blair. That changed to 48 hours notice to fire. But my understanding is that's a maximum. And depending on where the submarine on patrol is actually in the Atlantic, which is where, where these submarines patrol, it could be a lot less. I mean, it could be sort of an hour or so. So that's kind of the, the, the system that the UK has had. Throughout the Cold War, we had other nuclear weapon systems too, shorter-range air-deliverable systems. But after the Cold War, a lot of those were retired, and we went down to the single Trident system that we have now, the four submarines that are called the Vanguard class, the US Trident missile, and the, the warhead for those. is called the Holbrook Warhead that was designed and developed through the, the 1980s.
2: And so are these still on patrol today? Is there always a British submarine gliding silently beneath the waves somewhere in the world. Yeah. I mean, they're in the Atlantic, as far as I'm aware. I don't think,
3: I mean, we, we probably wouldn't know in terms of detail that is released, mainly under Freedom of Information requests from the British government. But yes, that policy still stands. For those that are interested, it's called Operation Relentless, and it is still standard practice for the Royal Navy to have on patrol Permanently, one of its four nuclear-armed Vanguard-class submarines ready to fire. At the moment, the policy is, and this 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 was a policy change that came in in 2010. The boats deploy with up to 40 Trident warheads, each of which is reckoned to have, I mean, the figures never released, reckoned to have an explosive yield of somewhere between 90 and, and 100 kilotons. To put that in perspective, the bombs that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki were estimated at around 14 and 18 kilotons. So these are are about seven or eight times more explosive than the bombs that that leveled those two cities in in August 1945 at the end of World War II. So there's there's always a boat permanently on patrol, on operational duty. I mean, it's the job of that crew to be out there for a couple of months at a time ready to to receive orders to fire and and do so if should that horrific eventuality ever occur
2: now i've gone through a lot of the archival documents that trying to justify the the use of these weapons or try and justify new strategies behind their use especially those debates between people like the big cigar smoking general Curtis LeMay in the US during the 1950s and his massive retaliation his push to try and you know get JFK to potentially even use nuclear weapons during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And even then, it was up for debate whether or not JFK would have ever used those missile systems. When I was going through McNamara's diaries and letters, he was saying that JFK said we we wouldn't even fire back straight away if a single Soviet missile had been sent to us. Instead, we'd check, confirm, and then we'd try and communicate and see if it was a mistake or not. This was the point where you tried to avoid that mega-death as it was called at the time. So why do we still have these today? The Cold War is over. In fact, we're even moving to a point where our number of Trident nuclear warheads are set to increase under Boris Johnson's government. Why is this the case, Nick? Well, the argument essentially
3: rests on one of future uncertainty. So it's a particular reading of world politics. And I think the interesting thing, for well, one of the interesting things about what nuclear weapons do is whether they necessarily construct a view of world politics in order to justify the existence of these weapons and their potential use, or whether you think they are more of an objective sort of response, reflection to the world as it is. So the, the argument is that we live in, I mean, it's, it's a broadly you know, realist argument that we live in a world of competing adversarial States in which you cannot discount the possibility of a nuclear armed predatory state using its nuclear weapons to try and coerce or blackmail or otherwise threaten its enemies into doing things that they would otherwise not wish to do or even a- attacking other states with nuclear weapons, or attacking them with other types of weapons, non-nuclear, and then threatening nuclear retaliation if there's conventional retaliation and so on. And the only way in, in a nuclear armed world of adversarial states, the only way in which you can protect yourself is to be able to threaten retaliation in kind. I mean, that, that that's the logic. It's a kind of, a, a, there's a strategic rationality in there that's based on an awful lot of assumptions about how people, states, and the international system works. I think the real, the real challenge with nuclear deterrence as a system of thought is that it's not possible to prove or disprove it. The arguments for nuclear deterrence, the arguments for what's been called the nuclear peace, and the argument here goes that pre-World War II, world politics was characterised by endemic conflict at the heart of the international system between the major powers of the day. And then after World War II, It's not and we've enjoyed this period of relative peace between the world's major powers since 1945. Of course, we saw plenty of very horrific conflicts during that period. What were described as proxy conflicts during the Cold War, particularly Korea and and Vietnam, with with massive loss of life, as well as other major conflicts, for example, in, in the Congo, with massive loss of life. So this isn't to argue that, you know, everything's been... Been relatively peaceful in terms of war in world politics, but the argument is that it's nuclear weapons that have transformed the incentives for war between the major powers at the heart of the international system and those arguments are also based on a lot of premises that are contestable but the challenge of engaging with with the logic of nuclear deterrence is that you to make the case for nuclear deterrence you, you are being asked to accept a proof of a negative, essentially accept that certain things didn't happen because of the presence of nuclear weapons, rather than being able to demonstrate that certain things did happen in terms of how nuclear weapons cause certain things to happen in world politics, what the claim of nuclear deterrence is that certain things didn't happen because of the presence of nuclear weapons, where otherwise they would have done. And that's the challenging bit, because an awful lot Changed after, and you'll know this as, as as well, James. Of course, and you know an awful lot changed through the two World Wars and into the post Cold War period. The, the devastation that was wrought by World War One and then World War Two. You know, it was widely accepted, uh, irrespective of the the two atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that such a war just sh- just could not, should not ever be fought again. You know, that kind of industrialized total warfare was something that was brand new, right? And horrific on many, many levels. So we had that kind of learning experience from World War II. We also had through the two world wars and particularly afterwards, a continuation of the process of decolonization in world politics, which has been one of the major transformations of world politics over the last 200 years. And that continued arguably up until the collapse of the Soviet Union. Where the, the end of the last sort of formal European ish for the Soviets empire with the advent of the United Nations, this started to fundamentally reshape the structures of world politics and then we we had what we come to know now as, as sort of globalization starting really in the 1970s global interdependence, economic globalization, and everything that's gone gone with that we 're in this era now of really complicated complex integration and, and interdependence so we 've got all that going on an overlaid Above that, if you like, it, this is how I suppose I picture, overlaid above that is, is the arguments for the, the necessity and legitimacy of doing this thing, practicing this thing called nuclear deterrence, it is an idea, of, well, you've got all this stuff, but there's still this starkly realist world there where states can and almost certainly will go to war up to and including doing another World War II if the threat of nuclear violence isn't there to hold those impulses in check so so that's kind of where the where the argument is you've got that starkly realist view justifying necessitating nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence and the potential for you know cataclysmic civilization ending nuclear omnicide and at the same time, you know and lots of explanation is being heaped on that we you know, the argument is we we need that to hold these impulses check because that that view of world politics is 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 the reality of world politics, and yet at the same time in the nuclear era you 've got these other really important dynamics in world politics that that see world politics in in a quite different way, in which the question. For which nuclear weapons are presented as as the answer, the the question kind of doesn't make sense. One way of getting at that, then I suppose, is is that there are questions over whether how much explanatory weight we can legitimately place upon the effects of nuclear deterrence in in this post Cold War period of relative relative peace, okay. whether the juxtaposition of our post World War II kind of relative peace between the major powers compared to a very violent pre-World War II history is is really right, because it's more complicated than that. There were periods of quite extensive peace between the the then powers at the heart of the international system pre-World War II. And then going back to kind of the absolute horrors of World War II, forget about the atomic bombings, which were horrific in their own ways. But, you know, those, those six years that built up to up to that point, the horrors of that, the question that, that we need to ask that often doesn't get asked, and this comes from my friend at Science Po in Paris, Benoit Palopadas, is what really is and sort of how can we know what the added deterrence value of nuclear weapons is? Because there is an awful lot to deter states allowing their... Conflicts and their violent conflicts to escalate up to something like World War II, industrialized total war at the heart of the international system. There's an awful lot in place that deters that anyway. What's the added deterrent part that nuclear weapons are are meant to bring to this? So uh, I've probably gone around the (laughs) houses a bit there, but there are these kind of concepts in play around the nuclear peace, nuclear deterrence, a particular reading of war politics through that realist sense since World War II, and, and the extent to which that characterization reflects many other important dynamics in world politics since then. For me, the answer is that nuclear weapons don't make sense. But for others, there are plenty of others who argue that they really do. And they'll make sense until there's some kind of radical transformation of world politics to the extent that the nation state doesn't exist anymore, which means living with them
2: in perpetuity, right? Yeah, I guess. And you raise some really interesting questions, because people ask when it comes to trident or the next missile system that will replace it is it really worth spending that much of taxpayer's money on these incredibly expensive missile systems when the country is racked in debt and trying to recover from covid and at least a government or a military response would be well yes because they're always working you know it's not a question of whether or not you know we would press that nuclear red button so to speak But it's the threat that we could. And they're always there. And they're deterring other nuclear countries, such as Russia or China or perhaps North Korea or Iran, who may potentially use these weapons against us. Am I right? Is that the justification? Yeah, broadly so. But it's really problematic, right? Because, you 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 know, I hear
3: this argument that nuclear weapons are being used all the time. And my response is, well, where's your evidence to support that? Where's the evidence that particular countries and political leaders, the military elites in Beijing or Pyongyang or or Moscow are being actively deterred by the fact that the U.K., or the United States or whomever, has nuclear weapons deployed and demonstrably ready to use in, in fairly short timeframes. There is a, a real susceptibility to conflating causation with correlation here. You know, Other critics describe it as the logic of voodoo. You practice kind of witch-doctor medicine, certain things don't happen or do happen, and you say, well, that's down to my witch-doctor medicine. In fact, the lines of causality are for completely different reasons. So, I mean that—that's the tricky thing. Nuclear deterrence does become something of an article of faith. I consider nuclear deterrence to be an ideology, and I, I don't—I know ideology can be used in a pejorative sense, and I don't mean it in a pejorative sense. I do mean it as in it's—it's it's almost necessarily a set of—it's—it's it, it's a, it's a system of meaning, a structure of beliefs, and and so on. And I guess a fundamental reason why it's a system of beliefs in, into which people become socialized. Is because fortunately we don't have an empirical database of nuclear wars and the collapse of, of nuclear deterrence resulting in nuclear violence. If we did have a database, there probably wouldn't be anyone here to use it. We have to go on faith in many ways. You know, the, the empirical evidence that we do have is well, you know, we've got Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but that you know, the, the, the concepts of nuclear deterrence were just about, you know, tentatively starting to emerge in, in the cadre of strategic theorists at the time. But they wasn't established in, in any in any significant sense. And it wasn't a nuclear war because it was entirely one-sided and it was understood in the context of the conventional strategic bombing that had been perpetrated by both sides in that war in, in Europe and and then by, by the US Air Force against Japan. And we've, we've, you know, fortunately had nothing since there have been no nuclear wars, lots of nuclear tests, some pretty severe crises, not least the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, which has been thoroughly dissected. but. You know, we continue to learn lots of new things about that. If you are a believer in the ideology of nuclear deterrence and the arguments that stem from that about the legitimacy of nuclear weapons and the necessity of nuclear weapons, then you, you will put the, the lack of that empirical database, data set down to the, the successful functioning of nuclear deterrence itself. Others from a more critical perspective will question that. And I come from that critical perspective question that in, in terms of the, the difficulty of marshalling a sufficiently compelling body of evidence that moves from correlation into something. You know, you're know, you never going to be able to unequivocally prove things in, in social and political science. It's, the world doesn't work that way. But you know, a, a sufficiently compelling body of evidence to demonstrate that it really is the perceived threat of nuclear violence that has held in check actions that would otherwise... You know, really have been enacted. And I think, and this is pertinent to the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, that, that, that nuclear weapons haven't been the cause of nuclear crises themselves, which arguably in the Cuban Missile Crisis, it, they were. Nuclear weapons were a significant cause
2: of the Cuban Missile Crisis itself. I think you're showing exactly this is still very much a live problem that is being deliberated and debated in your own mind and in the minds of so many academics and policy makers and military personnel across the world.
1: Imagine a millennium that laid the foundations for the modern world as we know it today, when kingdoms were forged, languages shaped, cultures created. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman, and on Gone Medieval, my co-host Matt Lewis and I will tell you just why the so-called Dark Ages really weren't that dark after all. Subscribe to Gone Medieval by History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact
2: that's the deterrence aspect and the international aspect. But are we missing something here? Is there a domestic element to Britain's need for Trident? And here, I'm kind of cheekily pushing towards the importance of Scotland.
3: Yeah, okay. So to come back to the UK, then. So we are in the process of recapitalising the Trident system. So the submarines, the missiles, the warheads, starting with, and this was kicked off by the Tony Blair government in 2006, starting with the commissioning, the the design development, commissioning of four new ballistic missile submarines. They're called the Dreadnought class, and they're going to replace the Vanguard class. The first of those is being built at the Barrow shipyard in Cumbria in the north of England now. The first of those is due to be commissioned into service in the early 2030s. That, that's as specific as the government is getting now, early 2030s. And that's been delayed a lot. It was going to be 2024, back in 2010, then 2028, and now it's early 2030s. And so there's been a, a lot of debate in the UK at various times since that around that decision in 2006, particularly around the general elections in 2010 and 2015, and around the Scottish independence referendum in 2014, about the case for investing an awful lot of money in these incredibly expensive, very sophisticated machines that are capable of delivering catastrophic horrors upon whomever they may be fired against, particularly, I suppose, Moscow. The the Labour Party in the UK has been split on this. And and the Conservative Party have, in this period and historically, taken good political advantage of that. And the Scottish National Party, which is the party of government in the devolved administration in Edinburgh, in Scotland, is vehemently opposed, in principle, to nuclear weapons. The debate has been around lots of domestic political stuff. It's been around cost. It's been around just in terms of of numbers. So the figure at the moment is 31 billion for the recapitalization program, plus another 10 billion in reserve, because these things always overrun. Ministry of Defence has proven itself troubled, let's say, to bring in big projects on time and on budget. So it's a a big amount of money. And there's been lots of discussion around opportunity costs, both for the Ministry of Defence, you know, if you're spanking a load of money on these ballistic missile submarines, then what are you being asked to cut? And that's affected the Navy quite a bit, but also wider social opportunity costs. You know, if you're spending this much on nuclear-armed submarines, how many nurses could that buy? How many schools could that build? How many hospitals could we afford with that? And so on. So that's been kind of the nature of the debate. There's a lot of politics around the shipyard at Barrow. The unions are well on board for building these submarines because these represent very high-end manufacturing design jobs that the unions are very keen to, to support their members' ability to retain these, these high-end manufacturing jobs, particularly in the context of the UK that's, that's really hemorrhaged Manufacturing infrastructure and jobs through the sort of late seventies, eighties, nineties, and so on, and and then there's the, the the politics of nuclear weapons in the UK, where you, you cannot escape the ways in which nuclear weapons get wrapped in the flag. It's it's been a feature of debates past, and it's been a feature of. What's been called the Trident replacement debate, which kicked off, like I say, back in two thousand and six with the Blair government. You know, we, we we routinely hear narratives from through the media and from our politicians and our political and military leaders that associate Britain's ability to continue to deploy nuclear weapons with a sense of what sort of a state Britain is in world politics. People talk about status, but it's a bit more nuanced than that, I think. It is about sort of national identity conceptions and the sense in which, to use Tony Blair's term, Blair framed and discussed the UK in terms of a pivotal power, accepting that we weren't a global power anymore, you know, akin to the United States or how China is becoming or how the Soviet Union was in the Cold War. We're not a global power, but we are a pivotal power, as Blair framed it then. With lots of kind of things associated with that sense of soft power, membership of the EU, as well as membership in NATO, UN Security Council permanent member, and part of that was being a nuclear weapon state. So within that context, for many, I think of our policy elite, say, the idea of the UK not having nuclear weapons is really to challenge that idea of what sort of a state the United Kingdom is. That's really deeply embedded. You know, Here you're getting into the culture of nuclear weapons in a country. A lot of the discussions and debates that are centred around the language and ideas and meanings of nuclear deterrence aren't able, by virtue of the language that they use, to engage with the importance of the domestic politics of a nuclear culture, which rarely gets formally sort of surfaced in policy documents. But it's there if you look for it, you know, once you start to look for it, you kind of see it everywhere in the narratives, formal narratives, media narratives around nuclear weapons. So there's a lot of that politics there. And the gendered aspect of this is important as well, because we have statements that quite routinely associate nuclear disarmament within the UK with emasculation. Some are more nuanced, some can be really quite explicit. And in that sense, when you have the Labour Party under Ed Miliband, a little bit under Gordon Brown, certainly under Jeremy Corbyn, toying with or actively supporting the idea of getting the UK out of the nuclear weapons business and legitimizing that in terms of the broad support in world politics from the majority world for delegitimizing nuclear weapons and prohibiting and eliminating nuclear weapons then what tends to be a fairly right-wing media and the Tory party and supporters of nuclear weapons within the Labour Party frame those individuals and those narratives as weak, kind of emotional and emasculating, frame disarmament in those very gendered terms, and by extension frame the retention of nuclear weapons with kind of strength, protection, status, influence and so That's kind of a bit of a background around some of the politics of this. Again, going back under Tony Blair, you can see a lot of this starts with the Blair government that came into office in the Westminster Parliament in 1997. So Blair came in and the Labour Party's manifesto included a referendum on devolving powers, in particular to Scotland. That referendum was held and it was won and a devolved administration called, I think initially the Scottish Executive, then it was known as the Scottish Government was established in 1999. And the Scottish Parliament was reconstituted. I once made the mistake of saying the Scottish Parliament was established in 1999. No, there was a Scottish Parliament a long time ago. Scottish Parliament was reconstituted. A slightly different voting system there in terms of elections to the Scottish Parliament, whereby there is an element of proportional representation that we don't have. For the Westminster government, which was meant to ensure that no single party would enjoy an overall majority in the Scottish Parliament. Labour won the first two elections, I think the first two elections, to the Scottish Parliament, but then started to lose ground. A bit of background here, really, Tory support over the 1990s completely evaporated in Scotland. On the back, of thatcherism and its effects in scotland which were fairly devastating in many respects that the trialing of the much hated poll tax by the thatcher government in scotland and so we saw tory support in scotland fall away fairly dramatically through the 1990s and 2000s a lot of support still for labor won those first two elections to the scottish the, the newly formed scottish parliament in the late 90s and then in i don't know when was it maybe 2003 And then there was a kind of growing disenchantment with the Blair New Labour Project. And we started to see Labour support really fall away, particularly on the back of the decision to go into Iraq with the Bush administration after 9-11, in fact, in 2003. And then what you had in the next election, I'm going around the houses now. (laughs) In 2007, the next Scottish Parliament elections, the Scottish National Party gained a majority there. Well, it gained, I think, one more MSP, Member of the Scottish Parliament, than Labour. So it didn't have a majority in the Scottish Parliament, but it won the vote. So it ran a minority government in 2007 and said then, at the next elections in 2011, if it won those with a majority in the Parliament, then it would push for an independence referendum. And that shouldn't happen, right? The system was designed so that no one party could gain a majority. And what did the SNP do in 2011? They won that hands down. They cleared the board, really. And now you had a majority SNP government in Edinburgh, and they pushed forward with their plans for a referendum. And the David Cameron government, the United Kingdom government, the Conservatives in Westminster agreed to that. And the referendum was held in 2014 and the SNP lost that or the coalition in support of independence lost that. It was about 45 percent to 55 percent. And the SNP, as I said earlier, have been consistently vehemently opposed to nuclear weapons. And this matters because where are all of the UK's nuclear weapons based? They're based at the Clyde Naval Base on Garelock in about 10 miles or so. 50 miles west of Glasgow. So all of the UK's nuclear-armed submarines are homeported at the Clyde Naval Base in Scotland. And there are many nuclear warheads, most of our arsenal of nuclear warheads that aren't on the submarines are stored at that naval base. And so this has long been a thorn in the side of the SNP who are vehemently against nuclear weapons in principle, supportive of global nuclear disarmament efforts, And want to use independence for many things, one of which is to see the repatriation of UK nuclear weapons out of an independent Scotland to somewhere else. That remains the policy of the SNP today. It was the policy under the SNP leader, Alex Salmond, who stood down when they lost the referendum in 2014, and by his successor, Nicola Sturgeon, who is still the leader of the SNP and the first minister of the Scottish government. And that is the manifesto commitment for the elections which are taking place tomorrow for the Scottish government. Well, when we're recording this now, it's an election tomorrow. You guys listening to this will know the result of that. So in the event that the SNP win a majority in the elections, then they are going to push ahead again for a second independence referendum. And the polls are a bit tighter at the moment. It remains to be seen if they'll get that majority or whether they'll form a coalition with the Greens or a minority government. I think if they're really going to be able to push for a second independence referendum, they'll probably need to get a full majority. If they do, the Boris Johnson Conservative government in Westminster has said that they're not going to allow this, but that raises all sorts of incredibly difficult constitutional questions on which I'm not an expert, but I think it will be very, very difficult to essentially say to the Scots, you want independence in this union of equals, but we're not going to let you because it's within our gift. So it's not a union of equals, really. And we're essentially going to force you to stay in the union. That becomes incredibly difficult. So if there is a second independence referendum and the SNP and the coalition in support of a yes vote for that independence win, then we have a very difficult process ahead of us. We've already experienced Brexit and the fantastic web of lies that was woven around that. And the incredible complications that have arisen, as we're seeing now, for example, in Northern Ireland, you know, lots of knock on effects. One important knock on effect has been to increase support in Scotland for independence. But there'll be lots of things in the mix here to try and extricate Scotland from some aspects of the union and not others, and others completely, and others to a degree. In that mix, will be what on earth to do with the Trident nuclear weapons system that is based at the Clyde Naval Base in Scotland. The SNP said around the 2014 referendum, if they win, then if, assuming having won independence and then winning an election to be the first government of an independent Scotland, assuming they win that and they are now the government of an independent Scotland, they they stated, Nicola Sturgeon stated, others in the SNP stated, they would want to see UK nuclear weapons removed from Scottish territory within the first term of a new Scottish parliament. So that would have been by 2020. So you're talking about a five-year timeframe there. So where are these things going to go? The answer is there isn't anywhere for them to go. The UK government would be faced with, I think, three options. The first would be to try and negotiate an extended territorial lease in the form of a sovereign base of the naval base in Scotland. That brings all sorts of complications because it's not just the naval base. You've then got to have sovereign control of Scottish territorial waters for your submarines to be entering and exiting the naval base. You've then got to have assured access for your nuclear warheads to be transported from the place where they are maintained, which is in southern England in Berkshire at the Atomic Weapons Establishment, Aldermaston. There are routine convoys of nuclear warheads up the motorways of England, northern England, through and around Glasgow to the naval base there. This would now be going through an independent country. So how are you going to manage that? It's pretty inconceivable that a UK government would be comfortable, or that the Royal Navy would be comfortable with operating with the degree of assurance required, an independent nuclear weapons capability without absolute guarantees that it can essentially do what it needs to do when it needs to do at all times with the warheads, the naval base, all the support infrastructure and transit of submarines, use of other facilities in the waters in and around the naval base is central to the operation of the submarines themselves. That's difficult, right? And you'd be talking at what sort of timeframes then? Maybe 50 years? 50-year lease to see out? The lifetime of the new Dreadnought-class submarines that are currently being built, when you've got the SMP talking about five years and get them out, one option is 50-year sovereign base and all these other things that come with it, that's difficult. Okay, so could you take them, relocate these facilities somewhere south of the border? I guess the answer is, I suppose, technically yes, but it's very difficult to see where you would put them. You'd have to rebuild facilities for... A much more extensive submarine base and more importantly is finding a place where you could build the warhead storage facility now this is built over quite a large area into the granite rock in scotland at the clyde naval base replicating that somewhere in the uk that's going to be co-located with where the submarines are is very difficult bearing in mind that there is a very very tight set of safety requirements around where you can first of all host and dock submarines that have nuclear reactors, then submarines that have got intercontinental ballistic missiles on them, which has got an awful lot of explosive propellant in them. And then with nuclear warheads on them, or nuclear warheads stored ashore in a hardened facility, you can't really build that stuff today in you know the contemporary era compared to when these facilities were first built in the 60s and then upgraded in the 90s. You can't build them near residential areas. And... Pretty much all the places, in fact, all the places where you could dock your submarines and potentially build or expand on a submarine base are near residential areas. So, you know, it's an incredibly challenging idea that the UK government, in the event of Scottish independence, will be able to negotiate, and that this would be accepted by the Scottish people, a very long-term lease, not just of the base, but everything else that went with it in Scotland, or replicate these facilities that would take a minimum of 15 years, maybe 20, 25 years to build at vast expense for reasons of nuclear deterrence that have less support now than they did in the Cold War for it, let's say. But it's borderline fantastical, I think. So what on earth would a UK government do that is committed to being a nuclear weapon state? Ideas about co-locating them with the French nuclear submarine base on Ile-de-Long in Brittany. I don't think there's much chance of that. What about going over to the United States then? We take our missiles from the shared pool. Can we not just take our warheads over there as well? Well, that's incredibly difficult for all manner of legal and political reasons. And sovereignty reasons. So this was looked at in quite a bit of detail in and around the 2014 referendum. A couple of parliamentary committees, including the Scottish Affairs Committee, had a good look at this. And there are zero straightforward options. They're kind of all borderline politically and economically impossible. So then a UK government it would either face trying to negotiate something that's going to be incredibly hard or take the decision to get out of the nuclear weapons business. But the UK government, or the Ministry of Defence, took a decision to homeport all of its submarines, whether they carry nuclear weapons or not, because we've got a fleet of what are called attack submarines, are nuclear-powered, but just have conventional weapons, took a decision over a number of years, which they've now done to homeport everything up at the submarine base in Scotland. And so, essentially, through the 2014 referendum and this decision to shove all those submarines up there... The Ministry of Defence, the Navy and successive governments have essentially, whether they acknowledge this or not, are placing a bet that over the period of the life of these submarines, the life of the new submarines that they're building now that haven't even come into service, and over the life of the new attack submarines, so the nuclear powered submarines that don't have nuclear weapons, over the lives of those. So now you're getting out into the kind of 2060s, 70s, maybe into the 2080s. They kind of put a bet down on the table to say, we bet that Scottish independence won't happen. Because we know the challenges of relocating all of this stuff, even just the submarines back to the UK, will mean building new submarine port facilities, let alone all the nuclear weapon stuff. We know all the challenges of that. And yet we're doubling down on the bet, essentially, that Scotland will not vote for independence between now and let's say the 2070s. Talk to people in the Ministry of Defence in that terms, and they say, well, these things were taken for kind of programmatic, cost-saving reasons at the time and so on. Okay, fair enough. But that is essentially what they're doing. They've put down a bet to say, we're going to put all our eggs in this basket in Scotland for the submarines and the nuclear weapons. We know it's going to be practically impossible to do anything about it if Scottish independence occurs, and therefore we are de facto betting that it won't. And that strikes me as a a serious gamble that, that they've made there.
2: Wow. So some stark implications for an election that is happening over today and tomorrow. And by the time that this airs, we'll have already had its results come out. So either Nicola Sturgeon's done really well and all of these problems have resurfaced and this history has come back to life, or the SNP hasn't done so well and these issues have been put to bed for a short time, perhaps at least. Now, Nick, thank you so much for taking us through this vast history and bringing the, well, the dilemmas and issues of Trident back to life and showing why they are so important to understand today. Where can people read and learn more about this? I mean, I've written a fair amount of stuff on the Trident replacement debate. I guess
3: those that are interested in the more academic scholarly side of stuff, I wrote a paper for the Non-Proliferation Review back in 2016 on this issue of Scotland, Trident and nuclear identities. So, people can take a look at that. If you want to get kind of a sense of, of some of the nuances of the debate, then, like I say, a lot of this was gone into in quite a lot of detail around the 2014 independence referendum. So, the Scottish Affairs Committee at the time did some good reports on this. Scottish CND, the, the late John Ainsley, who was a, one of the UK's real experts, I mean, from a nuclear disarmament perspective one of the UK's real experts on UK nuclear weapons policy wrote a number of reports on the challenges of what on earth the UK would do with the Trident nuclear weapon system in the event of Scottish independence. So the Scottish CND website will have a lot of information on that. If you want to find out about the history of the UK sort of submarine surface, and there's a great book by Peter Hennessy and James Jinx called The Silent Deep. And the latter parts of that book give you a lot of this more recent history around the Trident replacement process and give you a sense of the submarine complex and the nuclear weapons complex that's kind of wrapped around that. I mentioned Hennessy's The Secret State earlier too, which is a really good read if you're interested more in some of the Cold War history and practices of the UK nuclear weapons complex through that period and then into the post-Cold War period. I think he takes it up and through 9-11 too. In terms of some NGO websites, then the British American Security Information Council, BASIC, is a good place to start for sort of policy-oriented reports on different aspects of UK nuclear weapons policy and nuclear disarmament. And the European Leadership Network, ELN, produces short policy reports on a range of nuclear-related issues. And some of that will touch on the UK debate too.
2: Great. Thank you so much, Nick. And uh, you can go and read Nick's books as well, like A Nuclear Weapons-Free World, published by Palgrave. And you can follow him on Twitter at Dr Nick Ritchie. And of course, you can go and study a degree at the University of York, where Nick will go and take you around some nuclear bunkers. Sounds good, doesn't it, Nick? Yeah, and I'll teach you global nuclear politics in your third year too. (laughs) Nick, thank you so much. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Cheers, James. Thanks very much. Right. Mm-hmm.